My psychic sister, how are you? <gasps> I'm wonderful. How are you? You look so cozy right now and like your robe and... There's like a lot emotionally happening with my look right now. First of all, she's gorgeous, like hair done, makeup done, and then she's just like casually in like a bathrobe. <laughs> I'm because, here for it. Thank you. I went to the theater. I went to a matinee today. I went to go see Fat Ham again, which I mentioned last year, several months ago on, on this show was like one of the best things that I'd seen in years. And then it transferred to Broadway and it's closing in a few weeks. So I got to see it again, but this time on Broadway and it's just fucking wonderful and great and smart. And the fact that it didn't get anything at the Tonys just shows what horseshit awards are. Oh, it's so good. Did you go in your bathroom? No. No. Okay. Thank you for, for getting me back on the rails. Uh, no, I was dressed <laughs> very cute, but there was like a, a cinch situation. And then I came home and took it off so, <laughs> so I could eat Taco Bell. And decided you wanted to breathe. Yeah, because I oh, was going <laughs> to... Girl, <laughs> praise be the bell. Oh. <laughs> So now I'm rocking like a, a glam, neck up glam, and then just like a robe and naked underneath it because I'm like, I can't. I mean, I'm kind of digging the robe. <laughs> I feel like it's almost like a smoking jacket situation where I just feel like she's very like debonair. Oh, it's a robe from a show I did and I got to keep it. So nice. There you go. Love a free robe. Girl, I know. Fuck. But it's not a fancy robe. It's literally like a cotton robe, but it has that. It's like a waffle. What's that called? A waffle texture knit. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, not neither of those are probably the correct term. People are screaming at us right now. I know. I'm sorry. Texture. I have no idea. Yeah, like long johns and like underwear is is waffle. Yeah, it's waffle something. I think waffle knit. <laughs> is that correct? Waffle knit. Sure. It looks like a waffle. <laughs> I mean, now I'm just hungry for waffles. So that's all this conversation has done. Girl, I fucking love a waffle. <sighs> I love a waffle. Fuck. Who doesn't? Which, speaking of, I got to have waffles this weekend because I surprised my father for Father's Day. I was just going to ask. Yeah, it was like Thursday or something. Thursday, Friday. I was like, ah, I'm going to do it. I have enough sky miles. So in the Delta Sky Club, I was able to have waffles. Fuck yeah. So the only person who knew I was going was my mother. And there was this whole like plan for it. And like the plan, I was like, I'm going to show up early to this restaurant. And then I'm going to be seated at the table when they walk up. Be like, surprise. But for the first time in my parents' lives, they were prompt. I was like three minutes late. <laughs> And I was like, fuck, you guys are Cuban. You're supposed to be like half an hour late to fucking everything. That's so annoying. But it didn't matter because like the restaurant was like 45 minutes behind on reservations because it was fucking Father's Day. So like that play, he would just would have found me like leaning against a pillar, being like annoyed because it's hot out because it's Miami. But my dad was very psyched and my nephew and nieces also came and my mother got a really cute video of you know, my dad was like, they're here, like hide behind a column. And my niece walked up, like apparently she was wearing, she loves Elvis Presley, even though she's seven. And for her birthday last year, I got her an Elvis Presley t-shirt and she got out of the car and apparently she like showed the shirt to my mom was like, look what I'm wearing. I'm wearing the Elvis Presley shirt. Oh my God. That's so cute. And then my dad called her over and I peeked out of from behind the column and she just screamed and ran at me and hugged me 
and was like, I was thinking about you yesterday. And I was like, what were you thinking about? I was like, when I went to New York. And then her sister came up and was like, <gasps> and my mom got it all on video and it's wildly cute. And I've watched it like 87,000 times. You need to send that to me. It's so cute. And then you have my nephew who's such a boy. And it's like, because my the youngest niece's name is Juliet. It's like, Juliet, stop screaming because he's just... He's 12 and an asshole at this point. I scream sometimes when I see you. Come on. Oh my God, same. What's not to scream about? You're wonderful. And being surprised by you is the fucking best. Thank you. Likewise. I mean, and we, we embrace for a very long time whenever we see each other. Yes. It's very exciting. Yes. Rightfully so. And I see you more in person than I do my niece. That is so cute. Which is not a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, we do live closer to one another. So that should make sense. We do. Yes, that is true. That is true. Yes, that's kind of been my my last several days. How about you? Other than working your tits off and witnessing a crime. I witnessed a crime. Yes. Girl. uh, Yes. So I work at events and I was at shows for six days in a row, which was a lot. And on my final day, on the sixth day, was the BB Rexa concert at Pier 17, where a quote-unquote fan threw a cell phone and hit her... At her motherfucking face! In the face! What the fuck? So yeah, she had to get stitches. Uh, Fortunately, they fucking immediately were on that shit and got that guy out of there. He is being charged with assault, because that's fucking assault. And yeah, everyone like yelled at him and called him an asshole and booed him as he was taken away by security. So fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. And I went online and I read some comments on Twitter about the incident. And for everyone saying like, fucking New Yorkers, that dude was from New Jersey. So shut your fucking mouth. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Thank you for the clarification. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) I don't know why I felt that needed to be said, but I did. It did. Also, just New Yorkers get a really, really bad rap. We do. Because I remember there was these this couple who came in. It was dead at my bar. There was only one other person there. And then they walked by. And like, so we, we it's kind of like fishbowl-y. Like, it's just cle- like glass windows and glass doors. So like, everyone can look in. So one of the tactics that we do is like, we'll wave at people going by or we'll like, like wave them in. Come on in. Yeah. And it there's a fair amount of success that people will come and be like, okay, this person's like waving at me. So I guess I have to go in to be nice. And so this couple was like, yeah, yeah, In a second, we're like, oh, we're never going to see him again. And then a few minutes later, they came by, they came in and they were so lovely. And we like talked to them. We get, they were, uh, I think they live in New Jersey, but they're from like Europe, somewhere in Europe where okay. English is not their first language. I'm totally blanking. I'm sorry. Because we follow each other on the gram. They were wonderful, lovely human beings. And then they came in. They were, like, having dinner in a show. And then it was like, oh, like, they, I, we recommended, oh, you like these kind of cocktails? You could go here, blah, 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 blah. And then they took a picture at the bar and tagged me and tagged the bar. And it was like, who says that New Yorkers aren't nice? Like, we just had spent two hours having the loveliest time with these people. We got all these cool recommendations. I'm like... We are nice. We're just not nice if you're standing in the middle of the fucking sidewalk, fucking around. Choose a side (laughs) and everyone can get on and just be cute. Yes. Do not walk three people wide as slow as humanly possible when some of us are trying to get places. No. Sex in the city lied to you. No one does that. No. Mm -mm. No one does that. You cannot do that. It's very rude. It's incredibly rude. Yes. Fucking. 
Uh, no, I think New Yorkers are lovely. And again, there were like 3,000 plus people there who didn't throw a phone at the stage and just were there to have a great time and support one of their favorite artists. So fuck that one dude who ruined it for everybody else. Fuck that guy. But also speaking of of throwing things at the stage, because I was like, nobody does that. That's actually not true. I re- relatively recently worked a SEAL concert, SEAL of Kiss by Rose fame. And where I was, I couldn't, I couldn't see the stage. I could only hear the concert. But the people who were working there that could see the stage were like, oh, women went to the restroom, took off their panties, came back in and threw them on the stage all three nights that he performed. And I'm like, that is a fucking choice. You don't even bring in your bag. You're like, I want this to be fresh for seal. No. Girl. Which is funny because it's not fresh. That's the problem. I mean, I didn't know people did this. And apparently they fucking do. Who the fuck knew? I Not me. <laughs> I feel like I talked to somebody one time who... Admitted to doing this? No. Who, like, their parents are in the music industry and, like, knew the person who, like, was the panty sweeper for sure. somebody. I'm totally blanking on who the famous person was, but like, knew the panty sweeper, and that was, like, literally their job was just to get all the panties that women threw on the stage, off the stage. Never did that occur to me as being a career. Similarly, I did know someone who worked at a radio station, but it was a Catholic radio station, and the, there was this one priest who had a radio show who's, like, kind of a big deal, and he's, he's really hot. And his job was to file away all the correspondence that contained nudes and panties and other sexually explicit <gasps> material in a fucking filing cabinet so that if any of these women were like, you sexually assaulted me, to save it and be like, well, this woman's been harassing this dude for like what? ages. And we, yeah, that was his job. This is a Christian radio program. I know. Like as a heathen, I, what is wrong with you? Don't do that. Girl. I don't think that was the 10th. I don't think that was the 11th commandment, was to send nudes. <laughs> I'm just putting it Thou out there. Thou shall not send nudies to a man of the cloth. <laughs> oh, my God. In summation, there's a job for everything, apparently. Yeah. So. Wild. People are wild. Just whatever it is you want to do, I'm sure there's something for it. <laughs> yes. Do what your heart desires. If you want to sweep up panties for somebody, like, you can get that job. And you deserve that job. Fucking go for it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've gone completely off the rails and we're tit deep in panties right now. Uh, I mean, every girl's dream. <laughs> do you have a spooky, creepy, paranormal story for me this week? I sure do. And let me fucking tell you, I fucking love it. I fucking love this motherfucking story. So buckle the fuck up, kids. Ah, uh, I'm buckled. We are going to be talking about the William Booth Memorial Hospital. So, sources, wikipedia.com, nkyviews.com, linknky.com, ancestry.com, truthsfrombadgetograve.site, and the Spooked Podcast. (gasps) Okay, I'm so excited. Girl, that's so good. The William Booth Memorial Hospital opened in 1914 in Covington, Kentucky, a medium-sized city that borders with Newport, Kentucky, and Cincinnati, Ohio. The hospital was named after William Booth, an English Methodist preacher who, along with his wife, Catherine, founded the Salvation Army. Prior to the land being used as a hospital, the original building belonged to Amos Schinkel, 
Amos Schinkel was born into poverty in 1818 and was a pioneer Northern Kentucky businessman and industrialist. He moved to the area with a steamboat in 1846 and became one of the richest men in Northern Kentucky. He bought more steamboats, sold more coal, and bought property all over town. By 1854, he was rich enough to buy his landmark home on Garrard Street. Schinkel's wife, Sarah, adored her home on Garrard Street. In 1956, Amos bought controlling stock in the bridge company. And by 1869, Amos had so much money that he decided to upsize his living arrangement and constructed a 33-room mansion on the high point on 2nd Street, overlooking the Ohio and Licking Rivers. The building was a castle-like structure, typical of the fashion of the day, complete with bricks, large windows, inlaid floors, high ceilings, turrets, and marble statues. And while Sarah spent most of her time with servants on the sprawling riverfront estate, she longed for her comparatively modest home on Garrard Street. On November 13, 1892, Amos Schinkel passed away, and shortly thereafter, Sarah donated the castle to the Salvation Army. I don't know if Sarah was able to move back to her beloved home on Garrard Street prior to her death on December 18, 1908, but legend has it that her spirit does still roam its halls. In 1913, the Salvation Army got to work renovating and remodeling the Schinkel Mansion transforming the property into the William Booth Memorial Hospital. The first patients were admitted the following year in 1914, and the hospital was dedicated on October 24, 1926. Additions were made to the structure in 1950 and 1958, and in 1966, Booth Memorial had a capacity of 150 beds and 17 bassinets. William Booth Memorial Hospital served the Covington, Kentucky community from 1914 until 1979, when it was closed and decommissioned. And in 1981, the hospital was slated to be gutted and transformed into a condominium for affluent people in the area. And in the early 1980s, Danny Cope was working as a police officer in the downtown Covington area. He said it all started in the winter of 1980 around Christmas time. At that point, Booth Memorial had been closed for three years, and 90% of the inside of the building had been gutted. The construction company had hired Wacken Hut Security to watch over the property overnight to prevent break-ins and looters. The facility had no electricity, so the security guard on duty would carry a Coleman lantern, which is like one of those, like whenever you see like a camping, it's obviously something I wouldn't fucking know. <laughs> I'm smiling knowingly because I know exactly what a Coleman lantern is. <laughs> I had so many growing up. Yes, because you're like, I know exactly what that is. And I know that Monique had to specifically look this up. <laughs> Coleman's like the brand of the lantern, yeah. Yeah, I looked it up and I was like, oh, so like every like lantern like in a camp situation. Yep. So if there's any of you who don't camp other than me, that's what the fuck it is. So the security guard on duty would carry a Coleman lantern, which is exactly what I described, a flashlight and a small kerosene lantern to stay warm. Basically, as soon as the security guards were hired to be stationed at the property, the Covington Police Department started getting calls from the guards complaining of noises that sounded like someone was in the building, specifically the sounds of children running through the building late at night. Monique, <laughs> like, you know, you know, I don't, you know, I do not abide a ghost child. And now you're like, I know what I'm going to give her. I know it's going to haunt her nightmares. Okay. But you know what? Here's the thing. This is actually not a ghost child story. Okay. This is just a, just a, this is just a point of information. Okay. 
Okay. Because my first thought when you said that was, why would you do this to me? Yes, I know. And the expression <laughs> was very much, it was like head and hands, audible sigh. Why did you do this? <laughs> Just despair. It was despair. It was utter despair. And I would never do that to you. Not, I mean, it's a little bit, but not, we're not doing it today. So, <laughs> I love you. Thank you. <laughs> I love you. So this is just a, just a piece of information. This is not the, the crux of the, of the story. Whew. Okay. Okay. Sigh of relief. Whew. However, no one was ever seen, only heard. And Danny thought that these guys were just freaking themselves out, which was understandable because it was an abandoned old creepy building. But when the security guards started calling the police department three to four times a night, every night, Danny and the rest of the officers became less sympathetic and way more fucking annoyed. Because every time one of the guards called, someone from the Covington PD was dispatched to answer the call. And they were a busy police department that had real calls to tend to and didn't have the time to go down there and sit and hold their hand so that they would stop freaking out. But because it was their job, Danny and whoever else was on duty would drive down to the abandoned building meet with a guard and listen to their story for a minute or two and then say, well, listen, if it comes back, then call us back. And the cops would leave and the guards would call the cops back. And this happened every night, multiple times a night. And as a result, the Covington Police Department were slow to respond to any calls coming from the Old Booth Memorial Hospital. Then one night in the dead of winter, Danny was put on assignment covering downtown Covington, where the hospital was located. And the police department got a call at about 10 p.m. from the security guard at the hospital that he was hearing noises and wanted the cops to do something. So Danny drove down to the abandoned hospital and was met with the security officer who was completely freaked out. He said he was hearing what sounded like shuffling, giggling, and running across the floor above him. Danny sat down and spoke with him for a bit, trying to calm him down. Danny stayed with the guard for about 10 minutes to see if he could hear any of the noises that he was talking about, but he heard nothing. And the police officer left confident that he had calmed the guard down, that he was just imagining things and he wasn't going to hear from him again. Not even an hour had passed when the Covington PD received another call from the panic security guard. Danny went back and he admits that he was a bit rude to the guard, telling him, quote, this has to stop. We don't have the manpower to keep coming here, end quote. Same drill, he tells Danny he's hearing sounds in the floor above him, but Danny doesn't hear anything, so he leaves. Shortly after midnight, the station gets another call from the neighbor across the street from the hospital and tells the dispatcher that there's something wrong with the guard at Booth Hospital, that he ran out of the building crying and is locked up in his car. Holy shit, dude. Girl. And this is like a fucking security guard. I don't think it's just, you know what I mean? I was just going to say, like, they want to give off the impression, at least, that they are tough. And this is Kentucky. Like, I feel like these people don't fuck around. No. And I feel like even if you were scared, you would deny that until you were absolutely terrified and there was no other option except to call the cops. 10,000%. Exactly. So Danny goes down there for the third time that night. And sure enough, there's the security guard in his car, gripping the steering wheel with both hands. And he's not just gripping it, he's white knuckling it and just staring out the windshield. Danny taps on the window and the guard ignores him. He taps again, harder this time. And it's as if the guard is in some sort of daze and didn't hear him. So Danny banged on the driver's side window for a third time 
this time even harder and with his nightstick. And the guard jumped, finally recognizing him. The man refused to open his door, but lowered his window two inches and said, quote, I won't go back in there and you can't make me, end quote. And then he began to cry. This man has seen things. Girl, yes. This is trauma to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go in there. Like, I'm like, we can both leave, actually. Like, we don't need to ever go near there. That's good. Like, I'm good. Yeah. Like, whoever's in there can fucking have a hospital. That's fine. Whatever. Yeah. It had become clear to Danny that the man had suffered some sort of nervous breakdown. So he called the Covington Police Department dispatcher to get in touch with the security company dispatcher and explain that the man had had some sort of breakdown and that the company needed to come get him because he was in no condition to drive and to bring another guard. A second guard was brought in. He was older, more mature, and he profusely apologized for the trouble, promising not to bother Danny and wished him a good night. It hadn't even been 20 minutes and the new guard was calling the police department. What the fuck? Girl, I, no, I'd be like, I mean, I'm sure at this point, like Danny's like fucking furious. Yeah. I mean, I would, this is the fourth fucking time he's going there. I'd be coming back with a can of gasoline and a book of matches, like burn it down. Burn it down. Absolutely. I mean, that's what should have been done. But so once again, for the fourth time in one night, since like 10 o'clock and it's like 1.30 at this point, Danny was dispatched to the abandoned hospital and build a bridge because Danny's fucking over it. And the guard was waiting for him at the front door, holding his Coleman lantern and says, quote, look, I promised I wouldn't call, but I had to. You need to hear this. Can you sit down with me, have a cup of coffee, spend 10 minutes here, end quote. And Danny's like, fine, fuck it. And he ends up spending about 20 to 25 minutes in there with him. And that's when he heard it. It was the sound of someone giggling and running across the floor directly above them. And the guard's like, that's it. That's what we've been hearing. So Danny's like, all right, let's go find this person. So the two men got up and walked to the elevator at the back of the building. The guard with his Coleman lantern and Danny with his flashlight. And Danny suggested that the two take the elevator to the top floor and work their way down. Danny pushed the up button and the elevator door immediately opened. They pressed the fifth floor, the old surgery room, and off they went on their search. When the elevator doors opened on the fifth floor, the men found themselves in a fully lit room, as bright as could be. There was no furniture on the floor whatsoever, but there was an old woman standing in the middle of the room with her back to them. She was 89, 90 years old, wearing a blue hospital-type bathrobe and looking up at a clock on the wall whose time had stopped at 2.13. Danny looks at the guard and says, well, we found our noise, believing the elderly woman to have wandered away from Garrett Street Nursing Home which was just half a block away from Booth Hospital. Danny approached the woman and asked if she was all right and if they could help her. She turned around and Danny said that she looked like a sweet old lady who reminded him a great deal of his great-grandmother. She smiled, looked him in the eye, and let out a big laugh. Then she stopped and laid her hand on his chest over his heart. Then she dropped her expression and her face just went totally blank. No smile, no frown nothing. She shook her head a little bit, but then laughed again, dropped her hand, and took off running towards the exit door. She opened the door and sprinted through it. Danny was familiar with the layout of the building and knew that a woman that old and frail couldn't make it down five flights of stairs. So Danny took off after her so she wouldn't hurt herself, 
with the guard running close behind. Danny opened the door and began to step through when the guard grabbed him by his gun belt and pulled him back inside the room. And that's when Danny realized that the steps were gone. They had already been demolished. And there was a huge concrete pile in the basement. And at that point, it was obvious to Danny that the sweet old lady had fallen and was no doubt lying dead among the debris. Holy fucking fuck. For the record. Girl! I can't already. I fucking know. I fucking know. So Danny called for his supervisor and an ambulance while he and the guard ran for the elevator. They traveled in the elevator to the basement, then ran for the east side stair area, all the while Danny dreading the sight that he knew was waiting for him. When the elevator doors opened, everything was pitch black. The men used their flashlights and saw concrete everywhere, covered in dust and debris and dirt, but with no sign of it being disturbed. There was no body, no blood, no sign that anybody had been there. Danny looked up at the hole that used to contain the stairwell and found no stairs, pipes, or anything else that she might have been lucky enough to hold on to on her way down. Danny's sergeant shows up with a canine unit, and the dog goes looking for the elderly woman and comes back with nothing. Danny has the Covington PD dispatcher call the nursing home to make sure that they weren't missing any of their residents, and they weren't. After about a 45-minute search, the men determined that wherever the woman was, she was no longer in the basement. They walked back across the basement floor, all the while Danny Sargent is asking him for an explanation. And while Danny was trying to detail what had just transpired, they came across a door with a frosted glass window and the word morgue on it. And Danny's like, okay, well, maybe she's in there. So the three men open the door and step through, but there's nobody there. The only thing in there is a freezer. And it was a chest type of freezer that would hold seven to eight bodies. And what they would do is they would put a body in and then lay a shelf oh. over them on top of them. Girl. No. Girl. And then they'd like put another body on a shelf and like so on and so on. Things I didn't know existed and didn't need to know existed. Girl. See, because I thought it was just like what you see in the movies. Where it's like the wall of cabinets. I don't think so. Ah. I think it's one. It's literally like a refrigerator where it's like one big door and then just like shelves. That's from the multiple things that I, the things that I read and heard about this. I could be completely wrong, but that's what it seems like the description is. That it's one big door and shelves. Okay. I was picturing the opposite where it's like, all I'm thinking is like the freezer from my childhood that I would get popsicles in where you like lift the top and then it's like the big chest. So I thought they were like putting a body in, stacking something, and then like putting another one on top. It was just like- I mean, it could be that on top. Like it could be that, but what's going to happen right now? That doesn't seem practical. I don't think so. Okay. I also don't know. I don't work at a morgue. We have multiple very cool medical examiners who listen to this podcast. Hit a bitch up and let me know because I don't know, clearly. So that's what Amy thinks. That's what I think. We're gonna, I don't know. You tell us. So- Danny flippantly opens the door to this freezer, and when he did, the shelf on the bottom collapsed. And when it did, the men could clearly see a body lying in the bottom of the freezer. A body that had been forgotten. <gasps> no. Because the hospital closed like four years earlier. Yeah, what? She had been lying there so long that she had been mummified. And while they couldn't make out her features they could tell that it was an elderly woman who was wearing a blue bathrobe. The same 
as the woman they had seen on the fifth floor. And while Danny can't say for sure that it was the same woman, he believes that it was. And at that point, the security card passes out. Logical. I would too. Yes. I'm fainting immediately. Thank you. Mm -hmm. He falls, cracks his head open, and the ambulance transports him to St. Elizabeth Hospital nearby. The sergeant calls the coroner to take charge of the forgotten body, and the two men step outside of the morgue. And that's when they noticed that they were right next to the main electric feed for the building. And coming out of it was a thick cable the size of a man's arm. But the cable had been severed in two. And that's when the sergeant said, Danny, didn't you tell me you rode the elevator to the fifth floor? (gasps) Danny replied, yes. And that the fifth floor was lighted? Yes. And the sergeant's like, how can that be when there's no electricity in the building? No, 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 no. This is, no, no. This is some Tower of Terror shit. I'm not about it. Oh, girl, I know. I fucking know, and I'm fucking here for it. And Danny's like, oh, fuck, that's right. That's why he was carrying his flashlight and the security guard was carrying his lantern because there was no electricity and therefore there should have been no working lights or elevator. The two men walk back to the elevator, push the button, and nothing happened. The two stepped outside and looked up at the fifth floor and it was all dark. Later that night, Danny wrote up a police report detailing everything that had happened without explicitly calling the old woman a ghost. The security company stopped posting guards in the building immediately after that evening, and the Covington Police Department kept their distance from there also. But while on patrol, Danny would often see the lights on on the fifth floor multiple times. Several years later, in 2018, Danny suffered a major heart attack, and the incident made him remember the old woman who had put her hand on his chest all those years ago. Was she predicting his heart attack, or was she the cause of it? Danny just doesn't know. These days, William Booth Memorial Hospital is Governor's Point Condominium Complex, and there are units starting there at $130,000 for those who are interested. And while I didn't find any stories of hauntings going on at the condo, to this day, Danny's experience that night is the only ghost story with its own police report in the Covington Police Department report files. And That is the story of Danny Cope and his night at the abandoned William Booth Memorial Hospital in Covington, Kentucky. My eyes are saucers. I am literally (laughs) speechless. Girl. What? I fucking know. That is one of the most insane stories I've ever heard, Monique. I feel you can't come back from that. I can't. No. Like any of it. No. And I would tell everyone. The second I met them, I'd be like, I saw some shit. You want to hear this? Yes. Just you fucking wait. Absolutely. I can't believe they just renovated it and people live there now. I mean, I definitely lived in a condo that used to be a hospital in Miami <gasps> for like 16 months, something like that. Because Hurricane Wilma, which was the one three weeks before Katrina came and like completely fucked up Miami. And like my parents had to gut their house because of the damage. So they were staying in this bougie condo that used to be St. Francis Hospital. And... Did the doors open and close in the condo all the fucking time? (gasps) Yes. Did my parents tell me I was crazy? Yes. Was I like, hi, do you know how many fucking people died in this fucking building? A lot. It was a fucking hospital. Yeah. (gasps) Oh, no. I don't like that. So some shit has to be going down at this. Oh, 100%. If you live there or know someone, let me know. Oh, please. 
Oh, also for everyone asking, uh, I did talk to my dad. He says he doesn't know anybody. I think that that's inaccurate. I think he probably knows someone, but he doesn't know that he knows someone. And he just doesn't realize. Yeah. Yes. But my brother was like, oh, that guy would go into Versailles, which is a big deal Cuban restaurant, like all of the fucking time. And then be like, oh, like the seven star generals here. And he was saying (laughs) this at Father's Day at brunch and his girlfriend's dad was there. He's like, holy shit, he was a seven-star general? And I was like, no, he wasn't. He went to fucking Joanne Fabric and fucking stitched that bullshit on. Like, that's not real. But he was wildly impressed for a second. So apparently he used to go to to Versailles all the time. Okay. That's all I got so far. I, I still appreciate this information. The seed has been planted, Monique. It's been planted. It's out there. Yeah. Now they're going to be aware if someone mentions it, there will be follow-up questions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not done with the investigation. Oh, of course not. I'm, I don't know how I'm going to continue it, but <laughs> I'm gonna. Fuck. By mentioning it to anyone you grew up with anytime you run into them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Monique. Girl, I got you. Again, investigative journalist, Monique. <laughs> On the case. I love it. On the case. I'm trying, girl. Thank you so much for that story. That is going to haunt my dreams. I mean... That's very disturbing. Yeah. But I loved it. I love that there's a police report. I know. I love everything about it. It's fucked up, but I love it. I'm also, I also get this is, you know, why I'm single. Because it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's fucked up, but I love it. Yeah. That's just wild. I know. I, my, I'm, again, I'm speechless. I can't quite wrap my head around this one yet. I just don't see how you come back from this. Yeah. And I don't see how you can chalk it up to anything other than it being something paranormal and or a ghost. Like, yeah. Where's your obligatory devil's advocate? There's none. There's none. Right. Because you remember walking up five flights of stairs, but you can't because there's no fucking stairs. Yeah. So you remember getting on the elevator, but there's no power to the building. And there's someone else with you who's like, we got on the fucking elevator. Yeah. And it's like, I definitely saw that woman. Dogs were called. They didn't smell anything. A body was found. Like, the evidence is overwhelming. That's all That's all I'm saying. I mean, but that's also very sad of, like, her just hanging out for, like, four years, being like, someone come find me. I know. I'm here. Come find me. That is really sad. I'm glad she was found, though. Me too. And I hope she is now resting in peace. I agree. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I guess with that... So we got some some crime stepping into the, the crime den. I have some crime. Yeah, girl. Could you imagine if I just said no? And I was just like, eh, nah. I'll be like, all right. <laughs> Thank you guys so much Let's, for listening. <laughs> yep. Keep it cute. Keep it creepy, buddy. Bye. <laughs> yes, I have some crime for you. Oh, wait. Actually, also, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interject again. I'm like the fucking worst. I have a, a Puerto Rico insight from Christina. My bestie. Well, it's actually, it's multiple comments about that episode. One, tell Amy that all the Legos in the botanical collection are made of plant-based plastic from sourced sugarcane. Ah, I love that so much. I didn't know that. Right? She didn't know that either. And then she ran to mom at Barnes & Noble. And while she was looking at them, this mom told her. So we love that. I love everything about that. I do love that. That makes me want to buy I know. the legit ones. Yeah. In reference to me um, commenting that I, when I was a kid, I thought it was cool that I came from Conquistadores and then I grew up and I was like, oh no. <laughs> Christina was like, I once took a Latin American history class in college that was called My Ancestors Were Monsters. <laughs> so. 
That should just be what history is called from now on. I Yeah, I think that that should be a requirement. Right? Just saying. Yeah. So Christina, unlike me, is uh, very outdoorsy. And yet our, our friendship survives. And she says, what's crazy is El Yunque is the touristy rainforest in Puerto Rico. I've been hiking in the deep mountain rainforest there, which required driving through winding roads with like a thousand plus foot drops off the side. No fucking thank you. I cannot believe there have been that many cases of missing people in the like, quote unquote, beginner's rainforest. (laughs) We're not even on the advanced level. Like this is 101. Because it's people like me. People who know they shouldn't go into the fucking rainforest. I know. I know where the fuck I belong. Not in the rainforest. Or any forest, for that matter. In the streets of New York. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Among the flora and fauna of Pizza Rat. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. There's there's a, a girl who just started working at my bar, and she's like 22, 23, sweet baby angel, wee babe. And she just moved from, from Florida, from like a small town in Florida. And on her first day, she trained with me. And then I took her around the corner to a bar to be like, you know, like you should meet like the people in the neighborhood. They're real cool. And there's like a rat that's, you know, crossed the the sidewalk. And she's like, oh my God, I love rats. And I was like, oh, honey. Oh. You're just bright eyed and fucking bushy tailed and like the magic of New York City. And I was like, we're not the same. I don't, they fucking carry plague <laughs> and shit. The, and they steal your fucking pizza. The fuck? Oh my God. Well, I mean, I would take that reaction over like the deafening high-pitched scream that most of us let out and the jumping back in fear. See, I do the ju- the gasp and jump back in, in fear. I kind of respect that. If it's too close. That's me. I don't, I'm just because I'm startled. Yes. Yeah. They scurry. Yes. Johnny and I once heard a woman just screaming on the street. And he was like, oh my God, what's happening? Is everything okay? And without even looking, I was like, that's a rat scream, 100%. And then he was like, no way. How do you know that? We looked over and there were like 14 rats coming out of the sewer. And I was like, I know a rat scream all day, every day. No, that's traumatic though. Yep. Mm -mm. It was too many rats for the record. There's too many rats. Yep. Yeah, that's too many rats. Um, I've I've hijacked uh, the beginning of your story. So why don't we just... Get back on the fucking rails. It's totally fine. I really enjoyed that little update from Christina. Thank you, Christina. Yeah. I mean, my favorite of it is that the Legos are plant-based. I love that. I know. I didn't know that. And that makes me really happy. I know. Me too. And it, I will buy the legit Legos now because of that. Instead of the knockoffs I was planning on. The buying. knockoff Legos. Yeah. Yeah. Help the planet. Help the planet. All right. Into our true crime story then. Apologies right off the top because I know you had a trigger warning for suicide last week. Uh-huh. But I'd already picked the story. And so now you're going to have to go through another trigger warning for suicide and mental health issues. So Yay. apologies. I know. That's facetious. I'm sorry. It's my defense mechanism. I'm working on it. <laughs> Try to be less of a piece of shit. You know. I, that's a lot of people's defense mechanism. So, you know. Yeah. Life is hard. You get through it how you get through it. You know, yeah. There's there's yeah. a great meme that it's like, you're so funny. It's like, thanks, it's all the trauma. <laughs> <laughs> Too real. I mean, fuck. Yes. So sources, 48 Hours, Season 30, Episode 23 or 24. It was 24 on my app, but then when the episode played, it said it was Episode 23. So. Oh, I hate when that happens. I Yes. Mystery episode. Get your shit together. Uh, It's called Paradise Lost, if you're looking for it. 
CBS News, OutsideOnline.com, News.co.cr, Daily Mail, and JackSchwager.com. John Bender was, as reporter Neil Zeman so succinctly put it, brilliance descended from brilliance. Oh. He was the oldest of two sons born to Paul and Margie Bender, and his father had been a renowned legal scholar who had held a prominent post in the Clinton's administration's Justice Department, as well as two major law schools. Mm -hmm. Both of John's parents said his intelligence was evident from a very early age. But according to his mother, people were not John's favorite thing. He was a math and science whiz who won academic competitions in high school, but was also known to lose his temper with teachers or students who, unlike him, failed to question everything. Mm. He could play well with others, but only if they played his game. Uh. If they didn't, he'd bolt, melt down, or both. Although he was a gifted percussionist, he would refuse to audition and rejected Harvard simply because he'd hated the interview. As a teenager, John spent his free time hanging around the University of Pennsylvania's physics department, where he later enrolled as a student. He was on track to a career in physics until the summer of 1987. At the time, he was working at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, a government-sponsored facility in Northern California that works with high-tech weapons. And when he realized most of his job opportunities would involve, quote, helping out with new ways to kill people, end quote, he decided to switch careers. Mm -hmm. He worked briefly as a male model and used his mathematical genius to make money at local casinos. Oh, shit. Yeah. Work. He's a good-looking guy. Yeah, I get it. Hot and brilliant? Who's not into that? Come on. I mean, that's that's the goal. That's the dream, man. <laughs> <laughs> then one day, 20-year-old John visited a friend at the Philadelphia Stock Exchange and discovered the high-stakes world of options trading. And in about five minutes, he developed a way of trading options that had never been done before. Using game theory, a data-driven mode of strategic decision-making based on the anticipated actions of others, he found anomalies in the probability theories most traders viewed as sacred and used his predictive advantage to successfully bet against the conventional wisdom. John immediately began buying options with his own money and within just a few years was one of the top traders on the floor. But his peers didn't quite know what to make of him. Although he was built like a football player at six foot three and 250 pounds, he was a quiet, shy man who clearly suffered from social anxiety and showed up to work in medical scrubs every day instead of pants. He eventually told a coworker that he wore them so that people would think he was an idiot and trade with him. I mean, that's fucking brilliant, man. I'm, I'm here for everything that's happening. Yeah. In just three years on the floor, John had amassed around $80 million. By the time John turned 32 in 1996, he was running a half-billion-dollar hedge fund and was on pace to become a billionaire by age 40. Holy shit. Yeah, this dude is n no joke. I was blown away by all of this information. I mean, good for him. Fuck. We are not the same person. No, not at <laughs> all. <laughs> I'm like, how do you calculate the tip? Like, fuck, you know, right? this is not. <laughs> I'm like, just always add more money. Never have less. Always yes, add more. Yes. <laughs> fuck. That's me. That's me. Oh, my God. Good for him. Fuck. But despite his success, John never really fit in with the Wall Street crowd and was constantly looking for a purpose for his life. That same year, he purchased 100 acres of farmland west of Charlottesville, Virginia, telling friends he needed somewhere green. It was there that he met 28-year-old Ann Patton. Born in Rio de Janeiro, Ann was the second of two children born to Gigi and Kenneth Patton III, an executive at Chase Manhattan who worked in Rio, and her childhood was filled with private schools, parties, and white sand beaches. 
She eventually moved from Rio to Lisbon to London to New York, where she earned a degree from Ithaca College before working briefly at a fine arts college in Baltimore. It was while she was there that she realized that her mood swings had started ruling her life and after seeing a psychiatrist, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. According to Anne, it was during a manic episode that she decided to move to rural Virginia. Although she arrived scared, isolated, and frail, she quickly made friends, including one who invited Anne over to meet her live-in ex-boyfriend, John Bender. The two met in March of 1998. When John offered to get Anne a glass of water because he noticed her hands were trembling, she candidly told him that it was because she was taking a high dose of lithium for her bipolar disorder. John immediately confided in her that he too struggled with the condition. But while both of them experienced intense depressions, John's mania, unlike Anne's, often fueled long periods of inspiration and productivity. John also revealed that he suffered from obsessive compulsive disorder, but that he hated doctors and preferred to privately deal with his problems. While the two initially bonded over their shared struggle with bipolar disorder, they found they also shared other similar interests, such as a passion for travel and wildlife. John and Anne were immediately smitten with one another. Anne said, quote, From that first day, there was never any doubt that we were meant to be, end quote. John proposed after just two weeks, and the two were married the following year. John told Anne that once he made enough money, he wanted to get out of trading and create a better version of the remote paradise they had in Virginia. Both animal lovers, they immediately started making plans to start a wildlife refuge and finally found the ideal location in the dense rainforest of Costa Rica, near the town of, and my pronunciation is going to be terrible, but La Florida de Baru. It was arguably the country's most undeveloped region, and many of the hundred or so people who lived there lacked electricity. It was an area so vast and wild that nobody bought into this corner of Costa Rica not even Costa Ricans. Oof. But in 1998, the two purchased 5,000 acres in the middle of the Highland jungle for $10 million and began construction on their dream home, which they named Borokayan. It took four years and roughly 500 workers to build the vast compound that included four separate houses, a moat, and a helipad. Oh, shit. This house is beautiful, Monique, for the record. I would hope so. Holy shit. The main house was constructed on the highest mountain, and 48 Hours correspondent Susan Spencer described it as, quote, something you'd only see in a James Bond movie, end quote. A nearly 50,000 square foot, four-story circular building with no windows or walls and lit solely by over 400 stained glass Tiffany lamps. The only thing standing between them and the elements was a series of roll-up storm doors. Whenever they were inside, they were outside. And whatever was outside came in. Birds, lizards, insects, as well as the wind and the fog. No, thank you. I thought the same thing. It's beautiful and like... Get a screen fucking door at least. What the fuck? Thank you. Some nettings. If I wake up and there's a fucking spider on my face, I'm out. Be the lizard. I'm like, get the fucking lizards out of here. I know that you're cool with them. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. I'm cool with them. I The insects is what would get me. No, no, no. Oh my God. And like the mosquitoes and shit. One, those are the size of Buicks over there. Two, no. like if, if I'm in a room of a thousand people and there's one mosquito, it's gunning for me. Yeah. And it will be merciless. Everyone will be like, no, I'm fine. I'm like, no. Uh-uh. At, at least a screen you. door. At least some screen doors. Yes. And I, again, birds beautiful from a distance. I'm not crazy about them. I don't want them in my house. Please and thank you. No. 
want to deal with bird shit in my house. No. Floor-to-ceiling windows are gorgeous. Just pop a bunch of those bad boys. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, Mm -mm. thank you. All right. We're in agreement as per usual. Yes. Shocking. (laughs) The house is gorgeous for the record. Sure. The addition of some glass windows would not be remiss. Not the worst thing. Yeah. Sure. You can open those too, you know. If you want something, you can always open them. Get those like accordion ones that just like, yeah, fold open. John and Anne moved in in 2001, and every morning the two would wake up to macaws dangling upside down from the ledge of their roof. (sighs) They made sure to make the structure eco-friendly, reforested to undo the soil damage from coffee farming, and operated the place, first and foremost, as a wildlife refuge, the region's only large-scale private haven for endangered, abandoned, or injured animals. Which, they have a bunch of cute pictures of them, like, hanging out with, like, sloths and stuff, and, like, I will admit, that seems kind of cool, but... Not for you. I get it. No, it's, I need someone else. I need like a handler. You know what I mean? That they're like, this is okay. I'll be like, oh, okay, cool. I need a Jack Handy. Yes. Well, you'll be happy to hear that they hired teams of armed rangers to chase off poachers and six full-time caretakers for the animals. Cool. Love that. Great. For them, it was their own private paradise and they were happy. Well, in the words of Anne, quote, as happy as John could be. End quote. But then things started to take a dark turn. In April 2001, John and Anne were driving along a mountain road when armed men in an unmarked car forced them onto the shoulder. When two men aimed guns at John's head, ordered him out of the truck, and started forcing him towards their vehicle, Anne was convinced he was being kidnapped. When John protested, one of the men fired a warning shot at the ground between his legs. The men told the couple they were police, although they weren't wearing uniforms, and proceeded to arrest John. Hours later, in the local police station, a man John had never met before handed him a summons and told him he was being served. The summons was apparently related to a legal battle John was engaged in at the time with a New York financial manager named Joel Silverman, who had invested seed money in John's hedge fund and claimed that John had verbally promised him a 25% cut of the company's value. Doesn't matter any of that shit in writing. Everything needs to be in writing. Bro, you don't have a leg to stand on. I've been fucked over enough times in my life. To know. To know. Everything's been in writing. And then you just write an email be like, hey girl, I just want to confirm this combo. The thing you said. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's in writing, man. Smart. Mm -hmm. Get it in writing. Get it in writing. Always. The company was valued around then to be in excess of $500 million. Mm. Silverman said John was using foreign tax shelters to hide his money from both him and the U.S. government, which... Wasn't entirely inaccurate. I mean. Yep. And John hated the IRS so much that he apparently renounced his U.S. citizenship as soon as they moved to Costa Rica. After the scare, John and Anne fled to Canada for three months, a decision that was further fueled by the fact that they had become unpopular among the Costa Rican locals. Some were hunters tired of getting chased by men with guns, while others were just mad that they hadn't been hired to work at Bora Cayan. When the two returned, they immediately hired a team of security guards with paramilitary training. But even with the increased security, Anne still feared for their safety on a daily basis. They also don't have fucking walls or windows. She loves that, though. She's into that. I get it. But if you're fearing for your safety, put up a fucking window, girl. <laughs> I'm not I'm not victim blaming, but I'm just saying, like, it's literally like it's open concept to the max. Like, <laughs> have oh a fucking God. barrier. No, I'm laughing so hard, be- and you'll realize why at the end of the next paragraph. <laughs> okay. 
is we're psychic sistering so hard right now. That's what's happening. <laughs> okay. I love you. I love you. Like I said, Anne still feared for their safety on a daily basis, which triggered a cycle of manic depression, a physical breakdown, and an emergency hysterectomy. They received another scare a few months later when there was an attempted break-in at their house and the guards exchanged gunshots with an armed intruder who was seen heading toward the house. How is it a break-in if there's no fucking, there's nothing to break into? It's open. They didn't even get in the house either. So, but it was on the property. Okay. Moving towards the house. Okay. That is a fair point though. Is it breaking and entering? If you, yeah. It's, to be fair, the the main house is like on a mountain and. Is there like a fence around it at least? I believe the situation is like there's an elevator from the very bottom. Oh. And then it's elevated and then there's security measures on the elevator. So they have to like unlock the elevator for you to even get up to the first floor. I think is what the situation is from what I can tell from pictures and the story. Okay. So. Okay. There is that. But also you could, like, I feel like you could just like sniper somebody from the fucking ground if there's no walls and yeah i would imagine there's not fucking walls that's not where the story is going but that was the thing i was thinking (laughs) the entire time was like uh that does not seem safe the intruder fled and didn't return but after the incident Anne continued to spiral downward and when she crashed john followed when he wasn't searching for cures to help Anne, he was buying guns including two licensed ruger pistols and two illegally acquired ak-47s and fortifying the compound, which, as far as I can tell, still didn't include adding walls to the house. So, guys, look, I understand you're a fucking genius. I'm emphatically not. And like a wall would be great. Again, the home is beautiful. That's your dream. Live your dream. I get it. But if you're really afraid of that, of intruders, of people coming into your house, walls help. Yeah, they, they're not you know, they're not completely, whatever, invader-proof, but they help a lot more than, like, not having them. Just saying. Crazy idea. Bulletproof glass. Just, like, slap some of that up there. Yeah, and it's not like he's hurting for cash. He definitely got some bulletproof glass in there. Oh, 100%. At one point, they fled the country again and stayed in New Zealand for three and a half months. While they were advised to cut their losses and move somewhere else, John and Anne refused, saying they were in love with Costa Rica. Their commitment was rewarded in 2003 when they sponsored and hosted a research team made up of botanists from the U.S., Costa Rica, and Germany, who discovered three new species of orchid on the preserve, one of which was named in honor of Bora Payan. In 2005, John set up a $70 million trust to manage the refuge and provide for their living expenses. The trust would also protect them from any future claims against their personal assets, since legally they were only servants of the trust. John enlisted the services of a local attorney named Juan Alvarez to administer the trust. By 2008, John and Anne's legal battles had been settled. However, Anne's health continued to deteriorate. On top of her bipolar disorder, she was also suffering from Lyme disease and was now having trouble even walking. She saw several specialists in San Jose, but nothing helped, and John became increasingly depressed the sicker she got. John saw a psychiatrist, but refused to take antidepressants. Anne, on the other hand, was on a lot of medication, and by the fall of 2009, had all but stopped eating. John was convinced that the water in the area could cure her and set up his own treatment regimen, an unknown concoction he injected her with daily. (gasps) Oh, no. Uh, I know. I know. See, this is is the issue I have with, with brilliant people, is they don't, they don't realize they're not brilliant at everything. They don't know everything. That's really cool that like trading was your jam and you knew how to like 
fuck up a casino, but that does not mean that you're smart <laughs> enough to like fucking inject fuck someone with a girl. I mean, I wish I could fucking do that. I wish I could rain man the fuck out of a casino. That'd be great. Oh, I'd be debt free. It'd be amazing. Oh my God. Me too. I'm not going to go injecting shit from a fucking river that I don't know anything about to anybody. Correct. So I included this information, even though it really has no bearing on the outcome of this story, just because I found that was so crazy. Yeah. Yes. And, and just like, lets him do this. <sighs> Girl. I know. Mm-mm. Because she loves him and their relationship was always super intense. I don't love anyone like that. Yes. So she's like, there's nothing about him that's not intense. I Like, this wasn't that surprising to me. I mean, same. Like, that's who I am in a relationship. And that's usually who I fuck with. It's like, if you're not at a 54 all of the time, I, I don't have any fucking time for you. But if like my boo was like, hey... You're not feeling great. Can I inject you with like some river water shit? I'd be like, no, I'd really prefer you don't. Thank you. <laughs> Love you though. I would like to see a doctor. Thank you. You didn't actually attend medical school. And then if they're like, yes, then I'm going to be like, could we have like three more opinions on that? Yes. Just run up that deductible. And then if they're all like good to go, I'll be like, great. Deliver that to my local CVS and I'll pick that shit right up. This is, this is fair. Yeah. And I'm with you on this. Correct. I know. Yeah. Because this is fucking nuts. I know. I could not get over how insane this little tidbit of information was. I don't love anyone like that. I don't love anyone like that for the fucking record. No. That's crazy. It is great. Yeah. <sighs> okay. A year later, as the couple slid further into a shared depression, they had basically become prisoners in their own paradise. John had become convinced that every problem from Anne's illness to the death of a pet bird was his fault and became, as Anne described it, quote unquote, suicidally depressed. Mm -hmm. He no longer answered to anyone but Anne. Anxious emails from his parents were ignored and their employees hadn't seen him in weeks except for a few glimpses of him carrying Anne from room to room like a sick child. Then on January 8th, 2010, just after midnight, John and Anne turned off all the lights and retired for the evening. Anne was just starting to fall asleep when she heard John say something. When she opened her eyes, she saw that he had a gun in his hands and was pointing it at himself while he was talking. What the fuck? Yeah, this is going to get real bad. Sorry to be an asshole, but I'm like, that's not helping the depression. Just saying. It is not, but this is how bad it's gotten. This is the level. I get it. I get it. I get it. Oh, and I get you don't like doctors. No one does. Like, no one does. Yes. But this is the moment where you're like, you know, should probably go see someone. Yes. I hate this. Consider medication. It does help a lot of people. There's no shame or stigma in taking it. No. Correct. If you can't make your own serotonin, store-bought's fine. Yes. Right? Love that. Yeah. Despite her frail state, Anne immediately got up on her knees and tried to get the gun away from him. She said she managed to get her hands around his, but the gun slipped and went off. Anne said she ran around to John's side of the bed, saw blood dripping to the floor, and picked up the two-way radio to call for help. As she waited for someone to come help, though, she knew that John was already dead. Their head of security, Oswaldo Aguilera, was the first on the scene and said he found Anne splattered with blood, stroking John's hand and saying, quote, I tried to stop him, but I couldn't do it, end quote. While she told the authorities that John had finally succumbed to his long history of suicidal behavior, the investigators who examined the scene weren't convinced. 
confiscating her clothes and her laptop, they immediately suspected Anne of murdering her husband and claimed the forensic evidence didn't match her story. According to investigators, it appeared as though John had been shot in the back of the head behind his right ear, which, because John was left-handed, would have been inconsistent with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The cartridge was also found 15 feet behind the bed, which they found odd for such a close-range shot. The earplugs he always wore to bed were still in place, and there was a pillow that had a tear with gunpowder in it that they believed was used to muffle the gunshot. During a sweep of the house, Inspector Louise Aguilar also found thousands of jewels, precious stones, and gems. Diamonds, rubies, opal, both cut and uncut. Some were on display, while others were stuffed loosely into backpacks. The more than 3,000 gems were estimated to be worth roughly $20 million. Holy fuck. Jesus Christ. I cannot imagine. But isn't that like half her shit? Isn't the, aren't the gems like hers or half hers or whatever? Yeah. So what's the incentive? What's the motive as per the cops to kill him? Oh, that, I don't think that's the... That's not the motive? That No, no, no. That's not, that's not the implication. Okay. Sorry. No, totally fine. That's what I assumed. My bad. Oh, what's her motive to kill him for the jewels? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I was like, isn't that her shit? Like, who cares? Sorry, I thought you meant the cops killing her. I'm sorry. No, cops no, 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 no. I got it. I, I was like, they weren't there, Monique. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's a conspiracy. I'm done. I got it. Yeah, because I'm like, if she's, because they're probably like, you know, money is, is often a motive, especially when there's people who are like very, like, fuck you wealthy, like this guy is. And I'm like, isn't, aren't, isn't that her shit though? Like, she doesn't need to kill him. Like, she has, yeah, that's hers. So. Correct. At least half of it. At least 10 million of it is hers. Okay. That's that's what I said. Agree. Yeah. However, it didn't seem like a jewelry collection to investigators. To them, it looked more like a smuggling operation, and the gems were confiscated by authorities. But according to Anne, the gems were a hobby as well as an investment, and all had been purchased legally. By 11 a.m., Anne was in a police station an hour inland. There, she willingly gave investigators a witness statement and phoned her psychiatrist in San Jose, Dr. Lozano. Anne said she did her best to cooperate that night, but that she was, quote-unquote, falling to pieces. Within hours after John's death, after calling her family and Juan Alvarez, she went into, quote-unquote, some sort of shock mode. She was rushed to the hospital, where they found her to be severely malnourished, weighing just 84 pounds. Fuck. Which she's not very tall. I feel like she's like five foot one or something. Still, you don't weigh that. But that is so tiny. No, that's so tiny. You're teeny tiny. And I know you weigh more than that. I weigh much more than that. Yes. You weigh like a healthy amount. Oof. It's it's so tiny. That's how small and frail she is at this point in time. (sighs) She was also covered in sores, mainly from the injections that John had been giving her. They discovered a blood clot near her heart that would require the installation of a permanent oh stent. I yes, she's not in great shape. So the fact that the police are now going to try to accuse her of murder and like is a murder suspect for them is kind of bananas. I also feel like if something like that happened and I was there, I'm the type of person that in a very intense situation, I'm a freeze and a blackout person. I'd be like, I literally don't know how the fuck this happened. I'd be like, I I don't, I can't. There was a situation once where a lawyer called me about to recount my memory of something and 
someone called me in advance being like, this is going to happen. And because it was a thing that happened multiple years ago, I'm like, I literally have no recollection of any of this. And I lied through my fucking teeth about it. Hey, drama degree. Um, <laughs> and like, <laughs> and that was something that was not traumatic at all. If I'm in this situation, I'll be like, I literally don't know how this happened. I don't know. Like I would be freaking out being like, I don't know. I don't know how this fell. I can't recreate this. I'm just collapsing in on myself on the trauma and trying to not deal. Yes. And I'm going to go away for the rest of my fucking life because, like, this is my trauma response. No, I totally get that. Anytime I've ever given a presentation, I swear I, like, sure. blackout yeah. and I, like, enter a fugue state. I have no recollection of it. Like, I'll get off the, whatever, the stage or the front of the class or something. People will be like, that went really well. You did a good job. I'm like, did I? I have no memory of that whatsoever. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, like, if I get into a fight and that's, like, a very, like, like, I, I can recount maybe 10% of it. Yeah. Yeah. That is a natural response. Not everyone responds the same way. I get it. I mean, I don't know that the cops would feel that way. I think I'd be super fucked if I... You would not make a great witness for them, but... No. I understand this. Yeah, I know. Yes. Psychic sisters all the way. Fingers in the eyes. Girl. She said the doctors only gave her a 40% chance of survival in the first two weeks. Holy shit. Dude. She's in such bad shape, and the fact that this happened to her is just so sad and tragic. And it's just going to keep getting worse because, of course, her psychiatrist met her in intensive care just hours after she was admitted. When he was asked if she was in touch with the reality, he said, quote unquote, in and out. But he was certain that due to her severe dehydration and malnutrition, she wouldn't have been physically capable of committing the crime they were accusing her of. He said, quote, Anne could not even hold a fork when she was here, end quote. Anne remained hospitalized for seven months while police continued to suspect that she Holy had murdered. Holy shit. Yeah. Seven fucking months. Holy fuck. Yes. It's intense. Like, she was not in good shape. Again, he had to, like, carry her from room to room because she, like, could not walk. That's how sick she was. Oof. But meanwhile, the police are going to now accuse her of systematically murdering her husband, who was, like, 6'3 and 250. Yeah. Police continued to suspect that she had murdered John and built a case against her. Anne's two attorneys assured her that she could not be charged because of her quote-unquote mental incapacity, but at no point did they maintain that she was innocent. Hmm. Alarmed by this, Anne reached out to Juan Alvarez, John's handpicked trustee, who had hired the lawyers on her behalf and who assured Anne that everything would be taken care of. But in August 2011, Anne was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Fuck. Convinced the gems they'd found had been smuggled into the country, the authorities also later charged her with possessing contraband. After that, Alvarez severely restricted the flow of money to both Anne and the refuge, and security cutbacks allowed poachers to return. He claimed his actions were justified because of a postnuptial agreement between John and Anne in which Anne had waived her right to John's property. Ergo, Alvarez controlled everything on behalf of the refuge. But Anne had assumed that the postnuptial agreement was invalidated once they'd created the trust. Mm. She claimed that Alvarez had wanted her to be charged with John's murder so he could hide the fact that he was siphoning money from the trust and because she was the only one who could stop him or bring scrutiny to what he'd done. Oh, my God. Girl, this story was just fucking wild. So many things. I was not prepared for the level of this. Especially since it's like... Because it's not enough that you've been suffering from depression and you weigh four pounds because of it and you're sickly. Right? You witness your husband try to take his own life and in a fuck up, he gets, he dies and you're dealing with all that and 
you're dealing with all this other shit on top of it. You can't, you don't even have a second to be like, yes, I'm really depressed because my person is fucking gone now and I couldn't stop it. Yes. And I was like, oh, and you're being charged with murder and people are just stealing money from you and calling you the asshole. So fucked up. Girl. So fucked up. I can't. However, in the months that followed, Milton Jimenez, a former accountant at Alvarez's law firm, who was so distraught over Anne's situation that he quit his job and opened the firm's books to her, confirmed that Alvarez had used the trust to finance a lavish lifestyle and grand real estate ventures, including a high-end equestrian center. Oh. Yeah. Bro. Bro. Mm Mm-mm. In July 2012, while still facing murder charges, Anne brought Alvarez to court for fraud. Authorities raided his office and confiscated 135 boxes of documents, and the court removed Alvarez as a trustee. But regardless of his guilt and his alleged misuse of the trust, he hadn't killed John, and prosecutors said Anne's lawsuit against him was just an attempt to distract them from their belief that she did. I know, girl. You're not ready. (laughs) Girl, I don't know how there's more fucked up shit that can happen. There, oh, oh yeah. They put her through the ringer on this one. Fuck. Anne, however, continued to profess her innocence and claimed she was being framed. She had evidence in the form of an email John had sent to her while she'd been receiving medical treatment in San Jose. The email dated November 3rd, 2009, just two months before John's death, said, quote, I wish I were fucking dead. I feel so fucking horrible. I want to kill everyone and then myself. I deserve to fucking die. End quote. The email also mentioned that he hadn't been able to get in contact with Milton or Alvarez, and John berated himself for getting involved with those quote unquote scumbags. Anne said that the lawyers Alvarez hired for her never once brought up this email in her defense, and again, never claimed she was innocent. The trial, conducted in Spanish, began on January 14th, 2013. Criminal trials in Costa Rica proceed much as they do in the U.S., but with one major difference. Instead of a jury system, they use judicial tribunals composed of a chief justice and two associate judges, and verdicts don't need to be unanimous. So it's just uh, a majority? Yep. (sighs) The prosecution argued that they had sufficient evidence to consider it not a suicide, but a murder, and claimed Anne's motive was simple. She wanted the jewels, Monique! She had him already, though. She had him already. Correct. That's dumb as fuck. She already had him. Yes. But whatever. She wanted them to herself. She was going to run off with them, I guess, because a bunch of them were in bags. They thought it was, like, sketchy. It's bullshit. She literally doesn't even have to fucking open a door to get them out of the house. There's no fucking walls in the house. What there? What the fuck are we talking about here? <laughs> Oh no God. escape is necessary. She's like a ghost. She There's no walls. She just goes through the house. Uh, also, like, if you're going to make off with a bunch of fucking, like, money and or that's, like, not what I want to carry around with me. That is super sketchy. Like, how are you going to pay for shit with that? You don't want a Patagonia backpack with that shit. Like, what the fuck are we talking about? Girl, so ridiculous. I can't even. I can't. The prosecution's key witness, Dr. Gretchen Flores, a government pathologist who examined Anne after the shooting, claimed John couldn't have fired the fatal gunshot with his left hand. But while Flores made a compelling case, Anne had repeatedly explained that during the struggle for the gun, she jerked John's hands toward the right side of his head, at which point the gun discharged. 
Witnesses for the defense testified that John handled guns ambidextrously. And in Anne's defense, evidence of John's self-destructiveness was everywhere. Besides the emails, on the witness stand, Pete DeLisi, a friend of John's, testified that on three separate occasions, John had confessed his suicidal urges to him. And Anne herself said she'd stop John from jumping off their open-air elevator just two months before he died. After days of deliberation, the three-judge panel unanimously ruled that Anne Bender was not guilty. Although she hoped for a new start after her acquittal and remained in Costa Rica, Anne's ordeal wasn't over yet. Soon, news emerged that the jewelry smuggling case was now active, and on February 12th, a Costa Rican TV news outlet reported that prosecutors were investigating whether Anne's trial was influenced by a past business deal between her attorney and one of the judges who acquitted her. I think these cops just want the fucking jewels straight up, and they don't want to give them back. That's what it seems like to me. Right? I mean, I kind of believe this too. And accounts of this differ, but according to Anne, when the cops showed up on the scene, they were like taking pictures and sending them to her friends and like taking sunglasses and iPods and shit. They claim they did everything by the book and that never happened. Mm -hmm. But like, that would not surprise me, honestly. Like, I don't know. I wasn't there, but like, I don't find that information shocking. Same. Then prosecutors announced they would appeal the acquittal. And in May 2014, Anne was once again on trial for John's murder. Oh, my God. So there's no double jeopardy here? There's no double jeopardy rule in Costa Rica. Oh, my fucking God. So they can just charge you for the rest of your fucking life? Basically. So if a prosecutor doesn't like a verdict, they can appeal and try the defendant with the same charges, the same evidence, and the same witnesses. What a fucking nightmare. Yep. And for Anne's second trial, there were also new judges. The prosecution repeated their case and argued that the evidence from the body, the bullet casing, the entry wound, bloodstains, and pillowcase proved this was murder. Their main point of evidence was that John was left-handed, even though security guard and first responder, Oswaldo Aguilar, testified that although John was a lefty, he always carried his gun on his right side, which there were photos to prove. The defense continued to insist that it was suicide and there was no motive for murder. In a shocking reversal of the previous verdict, during her second trial, Anne was found guilty of John's murder and sentenced to 22 years in prison. After being sentenced, she immediately appealed her conviction, saying, quote, there's no evidence that proves beyond a reasonable doubt that I killed John, end quote. Girl, uh, when they come for you, that's when you bolt out of fucking, take your jewel, take whatever the fuck you have and get the fuck out of there. I know. Honey. <sighs> I know. Oh, I can't imagine going through this and my heart goes out to her. Like the interviews with her are kind of heartbreaking. Girl, sometimes you just gotta cut and run, girl. Because if not, then this bullshit happens. This is all because these people want to fucking keep the jewels. Sorry, I said it. I'm kind of with you on that. Said it. I know information that Monique doesn't know, so. Oh, I mean. I, I'm good. <laughs> I'm, I'm on this fucking roller coaster with you guys. I have no idea what the fuck's happening. But that's what I'm going, that's what it looks like to me. I mean, they still have them, so that is completely possible. Are they still there? Or is it like, have some of them like shown up in their wife's like, Jewelry fucking boxes. Right? Just fucking saying. Girl. Where are the fucking jewels? I just want to know. Just saying. There will be a jewel conclusion at the end of this. So. Cool. 
I love a, a jewel conclusion. <laughs> However, a key witness for the prosecution was arguably ethically compromised. A ballistics expert who testified in the 2014 trial said that evidence showed homicide. But in 2010, the same expert was paid by Alvarez to write a ballistics report about John's death, the invoice of which was found in the police raid on Alvarez's office. Oh! Sketch. Girl. So this was not in the 48 Hours thing, and this was not in the, like, main article that I used. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was shocked that they did not include this because this is like one of the sketchiest things about the story. Yeah. They said the ballistics report was likely used by Alvarez to claim $14 million from John's life insurance policy. However, the whereabouts of this money are unknown. Mm. Even from behind bars, Anne said she refused to give up. After nine months in prison, she received the news that she had won her appeal and was released from prison. Although the court annulled the verdict, she would have to face yet another trial. Oh my fucking Christ. This poor woman. Girl, just go on the fucking lamb. Is there like a huge extradition situation to Costa Rica? I don't fucking think so. Go somewhere else. Find a place that doesn't have an, extra, an extradition treaty with, with Costa Rica. Right? And start your life there. Girl. They took $20 million of your jewels, but I'm sure like financially you're still cute. Like go somewhere else. She like doesn't really have access to the trust at this point and is kind of like relying on her friends and family to like help her out financially. Oh my God. Yeah. They really fucked her over on this. Big time. I hate everything about this. Oh girl. I know. It's infuriating. Since forensic evidence was vital in this case, 48 Hours brought in outside experts to examine the evidence. Selma and Richard Eichelnbaums are both internationally recognized, but are sometimes known as controversial experts. They said that from the start, the Costa Rican authorities had the preconceived notion that this was murder, so they only saw what they wanted to see in the forensics. Mm-hmm. 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 They said that the blood pattern analysis supported a hypothesis that there was some sort of struggle and demonstrated how Anne's efforts to get the gun could have made it fire and how John's body could have moved. They dismissed the idea that it looked like John was sleeping when he was shot and said his body had to have moved for the blood to have pooled as it did on both sides of his body. They also said it was unlikely that Anne shot her husband from behind the bed due to the trajectory of the bullet. And as for the odd location of the spent cartridge, they said the casing can end up in that position if the gun is twisted far enough around, as they believed it was when Anne was attempting to get the gun away from him. They also cited other monumental mistakes, such as not immediately testing for gunpowder residue, not fingerprinting the gun, and not testing the sheets for blood splatter. This is literally the opposite of my story last week, where they're like, suicide, clearly. We don't have to look at anything else. Wrap it up. Wrap it up. Yep. Guys, it's an easy day. Tacos on me. Right? (sighs) I know. Just do your fucking job. Just do it. Right? That's what you're there for. If you don't want to do it, have another job. I'm not doing that job. I don't want to do that job. No. (sighs) Anne's third trial began six months later. When she arrived in court, she was physically more fragile than ever and had suffered a major personal setback as well when she found out her boyfriend, Greg Fisher, whom she'd started dating after her first acquittal, had died of an asthma attack while she was in prison. Oh my fuck, this poor woman can't catch a fucking break. I know. Ah. I'm surprised they didn't try to get her for that one, too. Right? Fuck. Like, seriously. For her third trial, John's friend, Pete DeLisi, called in legal reinforcements. 
two lawyers from the UK and two from the US to advise her local attorney. This time, Anne testified in Spanish, hoping to help her case. The prosecution's approach during this trial was essentially the same as the first two, just minus a few key witnesses, including their star witness, medical examiner Gretchen Flores, who, according to them, had gone on a quote-unquote recuperative vacation. Claiming this was just an obvious delaying tactic, the defense asked to bring in the Eichel bombs after they completed their analysis for 48 hours as new witnesses. For them to testify, however, the judges would need to agree to make an exception and allow new witnesses. While the prosecution obviously objected, the court decided that Selma could testify, but Richard could not. I don't know why, but they did agree to allow him to cross-examine the state's medical examiner, who finally resurfaced after two weeks. However, Costa Rican law prohibits American-style cross-examination, where lawyers use questions suggesting the answers they want, so Anne's legal team had to quickly train the Dutch scientist to think like a Costa Rican attorney, pointedly asking about her experiments without seeming like he had an opinion either way. While Richard had to tread carefully, as a witness, Selma could go much further. During her testimony, Selma said, quote, I see no support for the scenario of a homicide, end quote. While the prosecutor made a last-ditch effort to strike Selma's testimony from the record, the judges decided it could stay. And after three long weeks of rehashing the same evidence and testimony from the first two trials, they were finally ready to vote on a verdict. After three trials and nearly 10 years, Anne was once again found not guilty. She said, quote, the world believes me, finally, end quote. This time, Anne wasn't taking any chances. And as soon as the Costa Rican authorities returned her passport, she immediately flew home to the U.S. Correct. With Good girl. no intention of ever returning to Costa Rica. Good girl. Fool me once. Shame on me. That's right. No. Believe it or not, though... Months after her second acquittal, a Costa Rican court announced that they intended to try Anne for a fourth time. I mean, like, why are you so obsessed with me? Why are you so obsessed with me? Facts. Like, leave me the fuck alone. I left. I never want to talk about this ever again in my fucking life. You saw the fucking jewels. Keep the jewels. I don't give a fuck. Why are you so obsessed with me? Seriously. (laughs) It's, it's, I literally just would have sent the single, like the Mariah Carey single, right? <laughs> to the police department and be like, but like, why are you so obsessed with me? Because actually, why are you so obsessed with me? Oh my God, it's the Mariah Carey of true crime stories. I love it. <laughs> I mean, girl. I love it. Stunned, her lawyers immediately appealed. However, it's unlikely that prosecutors would actually try her again since trials in absentia are not allowed in Costa Rica. And while there is an extradition treaty in place, legal experts say that after three trials and two acquittals, they would be shocked to see the U.S. extradite Ann Bender for a fourth trial. Good, fuck them. Right? Despite the announcement, Ann is just trying to put it all behind her, saying, quote, I'll never get back everything that was taken from me, obviously. I'll never get back my husband. Now it's time to go after what can be recovered and find a life again. End quote. Ann Bender moved into a new home on the East Coast and has put the Boracayan property up for sale. In the summer of 2017, 
she finally got her multi-million dollar gem collection back. Fuck yes. Fuck these motherfuckers. Fuck them. She did have to pay Costa Rica $1.3 million in taxes, but... After a 10-year court battle, Anne's lawyers were finally able to prove that she was the legal owner of the jewels and that they were purchased legally to augment her personal gem collection with no administrative nor immigration irregularities. Double birds, fuck you guys so hard. Fuck you guys. However, despite her acquittal, reporter and CBS News consultant Ned Zeman, who went to Costa Rica interviewed her extensively and is interviewed in the 48 hours segment says he's still not sure what the truth is and that he can see a scenario where anything is possible, that it's an accident, it's suicide, or that it might actually still be murder. He said, quote, I think anybody who sat in that courtroom would probably say the same thing, except for maybe Anne and her attorney, because any of those make sense. End quote. I don't think so. I don't think so either. What's the motive? There needs to be a motive. There was no motive presented that made any sense. I agree. I'm on the side that it was suicide and she was innocent. After like watching her interviews, she seems 100% genuine. She seems genuinely distraught. Sure. She seemed like she loved him very much. And suicide or like wrestling the gun out, it went off. Like either like being like, I don't think she was responsible or like that it was premeditated. No. Is what it sounds like to me. No. Because there's also no motive. I mean, it's one of those things, like, I guess money could always be the motive. You want it for yourself, but why? Like, she owned it, though. (laughs) She owned, at minimum, $10 million in jewels. Yeah. So, which at $10 million, it's like, the difference between 10 and 20 is like, not, doesn't make a difference. Yeah. Like, 3 to 10 is a difference. 5 to 10 is a difference. I think once you hit 10, it's like, it kind of, that's, that's a lot of money you have to spend to blow it. You know what I mean? It's a lot of money. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's murder. That's my personal opinion. Same. We're in agreement. But not everyone is convinced. And that is the insane story of John and Ann Bender and their Costa Rican paradise that turned into a fucking nightmare. That's horrifying. All of it. Right? All of it. So many things, though. Yeah. I kind of need more information. Yeah. So I really tried to find it. The article by Ned Zeman was like the most... Like comprehensive? Thorough one I could find. Yeah. And I still just like have a lot of questions. Like what the fuck happened to Alvarez? I couldn't figure out what happened to him. He just like got, stole all this money and then like fucked off and never got any sort of repercussions for it, it seems. Probably. I don't know. I mean, it just seemed like they had a hard-on for her from the get. Oh, yeah. 100%. I feel like they were like, these rich white Americans came here, Mm -hmm. bought all this property. We're going to kind of fuck you over. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. That was horrifying. Thank you. Yeah. In every possible way. I can't imagine going through any of that. That's terrible. I can't either. And I want to say, if you are struggling with depression or thoughts of suicide, please reach out to somebody. Please, you can always call 988, which is the suicide hotline. Talk to somebody. Get help. Yep. Absolutely. That's my PSA for this episode. I'm sorry. I feel like I was a bummer and I brought everybody down on that one. No. But I honestly couldn't get over the fact that they 
tried her three times for the same crime and are literally want to try her a fourth time. Like they literally will not let it go. <sighs> That's again, Amy said it best. It's the Mariah Carey of true crime cases. <laughs> Why are you so obsessed with me? I, you started this joke. I just played on the beat. <laughs> no, but see, I like I, I volleyed it up, and you just fucking spiked that shit. Oh. This is why we're a team. We're a great team. We're a great team. I love you so much. I love, I love your you. story so much. I'm not going to sleep tonight because of it, but I am just so intrigued by it. Same. I loved it. I was like, I love everything about this fucking story. Spooked. Yeah. Spooked always fucking nails it. I just love them. I'm deeply horrified by your story. It's like, did you ever see the movie Broke Down Palace? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. It's like Claire Danes and Kate Beckinsale. It was like late 90s, like 97-ish, 97, 98. And basically they go to like Thailand and like, great, like summer vacay, whatever. And then they are leaving town. They're, They're leaving the country and like meet these like hot guys at the airport or something. And then they're going through security. And then all of a sudden, there's like a fuck ton of weed in their bag. Oh, my God. And then they're like, oh, so you're like distributing. So then they like imprison them for like ever because they're super hard on that in Thailand. Because yeah, because to them, they see it. If you kill someone, you've only killed one person. Whereas if you're a distributor, you're going to kill multiple lives. So you're like a mass murderer. And that's how they treat you. And then there's this whole thing of like, we're literally two American girls we're just trying to get home and we don't know how the fuck this happened. And we're stuck in this fucking Taiwanese prison, which is not a great fucking time to put it very mildly. And just like, yeah, Jesus, the thought of that. And then the thought of this woman being like, I've gone through some severely traumatic shit and you're going to put me in prison for nine months. You're going to claim that I, that I didn't do it. And then JK, I did. And like, and sentenced me to 20 some years. Like, All of this is like my worst fucking nightmare. Right? That I'm like, I'm just not going to leave the all-inclusive resort. Thanks. Because I don't even want to... I'm good. I don't even want to possibly fuck with anything that could possibly happen. That's horrifying. It's like, it's among the worst nightmares that I have. (sighs) Yeah. It's deeply, deeply upsetting. The thought of like something just spiraling so out of your control and you're you're completely innocent and you have no recourse for whatever the fuck is happening to you. And they just have decided that you've done it. And you're in another fucking country. And you can't say anything to convince them otherwise. Yeah. This is very Amanda Knox also. Oh yeah. Of like, she's like, what the fuck? You know? And God, Oh, but I'm glad that she was acquitted a second time and then fucked off. Yeah. (laughs) With her jewels. I'm glad she got her jewels back. Same. After all of that shit, it's the least she fucking deserved, honestly. And they still made her pay a fucking tax on it. Because again, why are you so obsessed with me? Fuck you. <sighs> yeah. I can't. It's always about the money, money. Always. Always. But thank you. I, I, Even though this story horrified me, I loved it. And I'm obsessed with you. I'm obsessed with you. Thank you for your story again. Of course. I loved it so much. And thank you guys so much for listening. We're completely obsessed with you. We're another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. And I'm Amy Traden. You can find me on the gram at pinupgirlmo. You can find me at lapotomy, and that's lapot period Amy. Also follow the show on the gram. We're going to put, I mean, if there's pictures of the estate, I want to put that shit up on there. Oh, there's so many pictures. There's pictures of them with like all these exotic animals. And no walls or windows. No walls. I will never get over it. I will never get over it. It does look like a James Bond house. I will say that. That's fine. (laughs) 
But you can see that on the gram at Another Fucking Horror Podcast. Every six episodes, we do a True Listener Tales episode where we read your true crazy stories. So if you have one or you just want to say hi, email us at anotherfuckinghorrorpodcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. Guys, we love you so much. We're so fucking obsessed with you. As always, keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.